there's a lot of terrible stuff that happens under color of law. So it's important to think for yourself where you stand. If the law said X, would it still be the ethical thing to follow the law? Or would it be the ethical thing to subvert the law? Technology as a whole is engulfed in what may prove to be a permanent moral crisis. And the best place to turn for wisdom on how to handle it is the people who have been through this before, whether they serve in giant companies or startups, nonprofits, or Congress. Joseph Men. Let's face it, the dark web gets, well, dark. The hackers and hacktivists of the world don't often like their work to come into the light. Some reasons are for good, some are gray, and some are black. But at the same time, some of these hackers are the paragon of moral ethics. So how do we cut through the noise, the aliases, and the secrecy of these underground worlds? In today's episode, we chat with the master about how. The expert and chronicler of this world is Joseph Men. Joe is the author of several books about these worlds. His most recent is called Cult of the Dead Cow, about the most notorious hacking supergroup of all time. Today, we discuss the work and stories behind Joe's books. We talk about the recent good that hackers in the COVID crisis are doing. Many of these hacktivists are coming to the aid of overworked hospital infrastructures who are being held up by ransomware. Plus, we talk about the ethics and infrastructure needed in a world increasingly being dominated and run by technology. The stakes are high, and Joe's words sum it up best. The more powerful machines become, the sharper human ethics have to be. If the combination of mindless, profit-seeking algorithms, dedicated geopolitical adversaries, and corrupt U.S. opportunists over the past few years has taught us anything, it is that serious applied thinking is a form of critical infrastructure. The best hackers are masters of applied thinking, and we cannot afford to ignore them. Likewise, they should not ignore us. We need more good in the world. If it can't be lawful, then let it be chaotic. Joseph Men. This season of Hidden in Plain Sight is brought to you exclusively by our friends at Splunk, the data to everything platform. Splunk helps organizations worldwide turn data into doing. It's time for data to be more than a record of what happened. It's time to make things happen. Learn more at Splunk.com or by clicking the link in our show notes. Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Where are you calling in from today? I'm in San Francisco at home. Very cool. And we talked a little bit about your quarantine challenges, and I'm glad to hear you and everyone around you are doing okay. And it's been a challenging time, but it's also been a time of uh, information that's you know coming out at an increasing rate. And I was hoping to get your take on some of the things that we're seeing, as well as uh, just hearing more about your story and your work, which is fascinating. So welcome back to the show. Yeah, it's it's been um, it's been really interesting. There have been a lot of sort of, um, uh, you know, good guy hackers uh, involved in trying to help deal with the crisis in a variety of ways. Um, it's, it's actually been really encouraging and, and, and nice to see. What type of examples of that hacktivism uh, or, you know, the good guy hacking, the white hat stuff are you seeing out there? Well, there, there are a few. So one of them is uh, there is a sort of a coalition of, of volunteers um, working specifically on, on, on COVID-related hacking. Um, so it's called the COVID uh, CITL, the Counterintelligence Threat League or something like that. Um, so they were worried about hackers trying to take advantage of um, 
I mean, the worst example would be hospitals. You know, they're not tech whizzes. Most, you know, hospitals don't have big, you know, IT staffs, let alone security staff. So um, they were worried, um, you know, the security folks were worried that hackers would, would look at hospitals that are, are maxed out right now taking care of patients and choose this time to lock, lock up their stuff with ransomware. And so what they did is they, they said, like, we're not going to charge anybody anything, but if we see any hackers going after um, critical infrastructure that is, you know, that is uh, a part of the response to COVID, we are going to come down with no mercy. Everybody's going to volunteer. It's like, it's like a, um, kind of like a posse sort of a situation from the American West. Um, and they're going to not only protect the institutions, but they're going to do everything they can to nail the individuals. And they're going to work with law enforcement, multiple countries. They're going to, they're going to do stuff like that. And so that's been their, their sort of biggest mission. They've hundreds and hundreds of people behind it. This guy named Mark Rogers, um, whose day job is at a security company in San Francisco called Okta. Um, but uh, he is, is probably best known in the hacker community for being head of security at DEF CON, which is the largest hacker conference in the world and is, um, you know, everybody tries to hack DEF CON itself uh, for bragging rights. It's, it's like an like open, open field thing. It's like a very dangerous thing. And he's the head of security there. So he's extremely well known. Um, so he's one of the organizers. Very cool. And you, know, you mentioned Posse. And I think what's fascinating about so many of these hackers and hacktivists is that they understand the law of numbers and they form groups. So whether it's groups of two like Legion of Doom or groups of many like the Call of Dead Cow, um, could you tell us a little bit more about how these groups are formed and how big they are in size to kind of paint that picture? Sure. Um, uh, like you said, there's a, there's quite a range. Um, there are, you know, they're very small groups. There, there are still like solo hackers that do some impressive stuff. Sometimes there's a group that pretends to be one person. Um, there's a, there's a very well-known hacktivist still out there, uh, sort of, uh, whose mask has not dropped yet named Phineas Fisher. And I don't think any believes, anybody believes that Phineas Fisher is one person. There's a bunch of people. We don't know, you know, whether, I mean, in my book, uh, which is primarily about Cult of the Dead Cow and other activists that they inspired, and they may be actually a Russian intelligence front. They, what they say is that they're, you know, they are, it's one person who's an, an anarchist. Um, uh, who knows? Uh, but there are, um, there are groups that sort of ebb and flow. I mean, the, grand, the granddaddy um, is Cult of the Dead Cow, um, and they've had, maybe 50 members over its lifetime, which goes back 35 years, um, never more than about 20 active at once. Uh, so, you know, people cycle in, uh, people cycle out and, and sort of the, um, it reflects the zeitgeist and sometimes leads the, the, the underground security zeitgeist a bit. Um, so sometimes they're more, they're leaning one way, sometimes they're leaning another way. Um, you know, anonymous, you know, is, is infinite, right? I mean, there are thousands of people, most of whom just did a little um, and they joined for one given operation as they call them an op. And, uh, but there was sort of like core group, uh, I guess in the sort of like the dozens. And, and one of the, the interesting thing about anonymous going back is that like the most, most of the people in it aren't very technical. The ones who are among the best formed this group that came to be known as lull security um, or lull sec. 
and they went on this sort of like performance art Bonnie and Clyde spree where they they went so far as to take take requests what should we hack next um, and uh, they they got broken up by the feds in the UK and the US um, this is about ten years ago but they had they had quite a run um, other groups ten or twenty is is kind of normal but you know they're not that many that are about like sort of this really sort of broad political perspective, like the cult of the dead cow is, um, you know, for that these days, you know, you can join the EFF or if you're more just a coder, you can join some open source project. You can, um, you know, you can be the tech person at a nonprofit. There are people who are rooting for the Democrats uh, who have their own sort of technical squad that'll go out and help a given campaign. Um, there, there, there are lots of ways to get involved now, and it's kind of rare that you have the, these old groups. There are, there are some, there are some, um, and I'll, let me give you a couple examples of other people that have been involved in the COVID stuff. One is, you know, if you recall, at least in the beginning, there are extreme shortages, not just of masks, uh, but ventilators and things like that. And there are a lot of sort of people from the, the, the maker, uh, movement or the maker mindset. Um, that that did amazing things. Not just there's a lot of three three D printing of face masks, uh, so not the surgical things, uh, but the more like a, like a welder might have. And that was actually face shields, I think they're called. And that was actually super useful for frontline uh, people in the hospitals uh, that were not getting enough uh, personal protective equipment. Um, and then there are some fancier folks that were designing and open sourcing ventilators. Uh, where there was also a huge shortage, um, and there was thought to be a worse shortage in the beginning in the U.S. And then there are folks that uh, unlocked CPAP uh, machines that help people with apnea. Uh, they, they broke through the protections uh, and made it so that they could be modified and turned into a ventilator that would actually be more useful for a patient with COVID. Um, so there's all, all sorts of stuff that's like that going on. And then the last thing I'll mention in this sort of this activist vein versus COVID is that um, there are attempts to figure out how um, how the virus uh, is put together. There's a, a big project that involves uh, folding proteins and to see how this works. And that takes basically an almost infinite amount of um, CPU uh, time. So people, the way that people used to voluntarily turn over the processing power of their home computers as part of the SETI, the Search for uh, Extraterrestrial uh, Intelligence um, at Home Project, SETI at Home, it was called. They went to bed at night, their computer would still be going, um, helping scan the universe for uh, signals. Um, that project ended uh, a year or two ago after a 20-year run, I think. Um, but people have been donating processing time to these to a number of, of folding efforts. Um, in terms of analyzing um, the virus that causes COVID. Uh, and one of the biggest contributors, I'd say top 200 contributors, is a group of old school hackers called Root, uh, R00T. Uh, and Root has been around about 20 years and is basically the, 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 all the old guard hackers. So the members of the Cult of the Dead, Cow members of the Ninja Strike Force, which is kind of a larger auxiliary group um, affiliated with CDC. Um, the Loft, uh, the, the great Boston um, hacking 
space, Woo Woo, uh, another uh, another old school group that included Sean Fanning, the uh, founder of Napster, um, and Doug Song, the founder of Duo Security, which got sold for a couple billion dollars to Cisco uh, a couple years ago. Um, it's a, it also uh, Jan Kuhn, who's co-founder of WhatsApp, uh, is also in in Woo Woo. So there, um, it's that's a that's another big contributor to the uh, the, the the root uh, folding team. That's fascinating, and I think that these large macro challenges that society's facing are going to have to be you know open sourced more to these smaller communities of, of helpers and. There are a number of examples that you cite in Cult of the Dead Cow about uh, the federal agencies working together more with hacktivists. How do you see this genesis happening of, uh, you know, hacktivists starting to coordinate more with formal institutions? How has that evolved over the course of your journalistic career? Uh, That's really interesting. So um, if you go back, you know, there was a there was real animosity between federal authority and the hackers, because uh, in 1986, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act made, you know, so much of, so much illegal that hadn't been previously uh, considered illegal, you know, unauthorized use of a computer. And that doesn't mean necessarily you taking over my computer. It could mean, according to the federal interpretation, that, you know, you signed a term, you know, a, a terms of service or you clicked on, and uh, I agree, and then you did something that was beyond what the that click wrap is that nobody ever actually reads. Um, that could be considered a crime. They used, you know, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act to get, you know, real, uh, real criminals, but they also used it to go after people that didn't, you know, out of proportion to to the harms that they caused. Uh, Aaron Schwartz being a, a famous example of that. Um, he was just downloading scientific journals and making them available for free, um, which is against the law, but um, he was looking at um, at uh, more than 10 years behind bars uh, when tragically he killed himself. Um, so there's been this historic animosity since the 80s, since the late 80s. Um, but the trick was that back then, if you wanted to turn pro, you wanted to go from an amateur hacker to trying to make a living in security, there weren't a lot of places to do that. There are now. But they weren't then. So some started working with with the FBI, um, and they were sort of shunned by the hacker community. Um, and in I go through this in in the sort of the his, my history of the, of the cult of the dead cow. There's sort of this this compromise that emerged, um, and probably the the leading practitioner was Mudge, um, whose real name is Peter Zatko. Um, he, uh, he was is kind of a, a legendary hacker. Um, uh, had worked on security stuff um, way way back, but also traveled in circles that had plenty of criminals in it. And uh, Mudge, who went on to lead DARPA's cybersecurity efforts, um, you know the folks that that brought you the internet in the first place, you know, and also did special projects at Google and and has done other all sorts of good things. His compromise was: look, I'm not going to deal with the FBI. Um, because they're going to want me to name names, um, but I will help the intelligence agencies, uh, NSA in particular, uh, CIA and others. You know, I'm rooting for my country more than other countries, and they should know what's doable and what's not. What's what's you know somebody somebody um, you know just trying to sell them lots of stuff. That was Mudge's compromise. 
Um, others in the CDC wouldn't have anything to do with the government. That's a route many have taken. Um, so they work with the intelligence agencies, not so much with law enforcement. Now it's sort of easier. There are multiple channels into law enforcement, and there is overlap. Um, there, are, there, are, you know, people in with these groups do talk to the FBI, but it would typically more typically be about something like going after uh, hackers that are hurting the hospitals. Um, you know, some you know maybe organized crime overseas, but not you know helping you know catch people within the U.S. There's still great sensitivity around that kind of thing. Sure, and. I think what is really cool about your work, uh, so your first book was on uh, Napster, where you were kind of alerted to a lot of these trends uh, via the fact that, you know, when we talk about Napster, often we think about like the bad guys, when in reality, you found a bunch of folks who were trying to ring the alarm bells. Um, and then in your next book, Fatal System Error, you were, again, sounding, it was basically like a dire warning, warning about what was going on. Uh, whereas Cult of the Dead Cow, you say, is a more hopeful look at the future and at some of the trends that you see um, with everything going on out there and just the world of hacking in general. Um, how do you parse out the most hopeful messages from it? And what are they? One is that there's it's, it's a lot easier now to do good than it used to be. You know, when the Cult of the Dead Cow came along, um, there weren't very many jobs to be had in security. Um, and what jobs there were, you know, you know, somewhere buried inside a big, uh, a, you know, a big company doing, you know, minor iterations of a Norton antivirus or, or, or McAfee or something like that, you know, which, you know, help, but really don't stop, you know, serious hackers at all. Uh, and in some ways can actually be you know, used as a tool by the bad guys. Um, so there wasn't a lot that could be done. Now there, there is a lot, there's a lot more, as I said, there's nonprofits, there's, um, you know, there are, you know, sort of mainstream non-technical places that realize that they need technical help, including security. Um, there's straight political work, of course, like the great, the, the most amazing anecdote in the Cult of the Dead Cow book is, is the fact that one of them grows up to run for president of the United States, um, Beto O'Rourke, having been a, a member um, in the first years. Uh, of the cult of the dead cow. So there's like people, I think another hopeful thing is that society as a whole doesn't see hackers as uniformly bad anymore. Um, I mean, hacker used to be this terrible pejorative. It, it meant that you were a criminal um, and you're probably unkempt uh, and possibly 300 pounds in, in a basement bedroom. You know, hackers are, can be seen as good guys now um, in a variety of ways. And actually Sean Fanning, the Napster founder, member of Wu, fellow traveler of CDC, was, I, you know, is the first, I think, cool hacker. I mean, there was like, there's Bill Gates um, from a sort of like a business perspective. But I mean, Sean Fanning was this like likable teenager that brought free music to the masses and was on the cover of, of Time magazine. You know, m you know, maybe the older generation disapproved. You know, break, you know, you, you know apps got shut down for massive copyright violations. But I think kids are like, hey, that's that's pretty cool. I'd like to do something like that, maybe something more legal, but, you know, something important. And, and, you know, so I think that's a hopeful thing. Um, so there's more avenues to do good with hacking, uh, and the, the, there's more receptiveness on the part of the public. Um, I think th those are good things. And then as a practical matter, they've already done so much good. Um, so um, they have helped you know, catch some serious bad guys. They've definitely helped companies improve their products. 
uh, groups like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which are closely linked with 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 hackers in the good sense, um, have fought for civil liberties um, or against mass surveillance, uh, against like uh, company practices that that are uh, not appreciated by many of their users. And you know the battles are all over the place. I mean, it's you know sometimes. It's the governments that are doing bad things, um, you know, tracking everybody, uh, particularly in other countries. Sometimes it's big companies that are doing questionable things. Um, but there's a lot more awareness of the issues, and that is brought to people often through these civil liberty groups um, that are, are sort of powered by uh, hackers. They're, they're like sort of not just technical hackers, but sort of policy hackers and, and um, people who analyze um, all sorts of systems uh, looking for holes and problems and flaws and bringing them to light. Sure. And Joe, when you are thinking about the future of getting uh, younger people kind of like aware of these topics and maybe uh, showing them different pathways to get involved, whether it's, you know, career pathways or uh, just starting to hack a bit at home, are there any movements or are there any examples where you think that this is being done uh, the right way, where it's being done in, uh, in a voluntary way? Sure. Um, I mean, the easiest the easiest thing to do is is is, uh, is go to DefCon because um, DefCon, while enormous, um, is still old school um, and has um, there. There's not a lot of you know uh, for profit stuff happening there. There aren't like a bajillion trade booths, uh, you know, recruiting booths or whatever. Um, and there are a lot of people that are kind of uh, do it yourself or types. Um, who will try and you know pitch their their open source project? Um, uh, uh, probably an even better, more idealistic one is a conference in New York called Hackers on Planet Earth, or Hope, uh, which goes back to the '90s and is run by the same people that publish um, Twenty Six Hundred, the great um, old school hacker uh, publication. So that's every couple of years in New York, uh, DevCon, much larger. Um, every year, uh, possibly including this one uh, in Las Vegas in the summer. But one could one could look at past talks at Hope, um, could listen to them. Civil liberties um, oriented, um, other sort of worthy projects. Um, you know, like there are things like mesh networking. There are all sorts of things like pr- protecting. Um, dissidents, um, you know, the Tor project uh, allows people to communicate uh, with less government, you know, less chance of, uh, of government interception. And that can be very, very important depending on what you're working on and where and with whom. Sure. And when it comes to political leaders, uh, you mentioned Beto O'Rourke and when, whether it's congressmen or senators, what congressmen and senators uh, or mayors or really anybody do you see out there that is appropriately informed about the nature of cyber threats and cyberspace? Tech is now underpinning virtually everything um, and security sort of underpins tech. Uh, so security is kind of like the the hard core of it all, uh, which is why I think it's so important and so interesting. So it is hard to, um, you know, one of the reasons that not a lot of great stuff has been done in cybersecurity out of Congress is that there are, you know, or something like 20 committees that could lit- literally you know, have a claim to jurisdiction over some aspect, you know, commerce stuff, criminal justice stuff, intelligence stuff. It's all of those things, right? 
So um, that makes it very hard. There are people that are very good at one issue, but not others. Uh, the, the first guy that comes to mind, though, is Ron Wyden, um, senator from um, Oregon, who has been, you know, is on the Intelligence Oversight Committee um, and it, uh, takes oversight seriously and has serious technical staff. Um, one of his staffers was is Chris Segoyan, who um, had been the staff technologist at the ACLU, a technical thinker. Um, Wyden has been, took what came out of the Snowden revelations and has pushed for reforms in a number of areas. One is what he calls backdoor searches. So this is still coming out, but um, the, the, the federal uh, wiretap uh, structure uh, allows um, interception of American conversations if the main purpose is to try and get a foreign operation um, caught. And, and unfortunately, um, what has been happening is that what Biden called backdoor searches, where instead of throwing it out, they'd collect, they'd scoop up conversations that involved Americans. And then sometimes they would search, uh, the FBI would search that database uh, for stuff for ordinary criminal investigations. Um, and they wouldn't do it with enough checks. Yeah, you know, this is sort of being sort of gradually exposed in one way or another. So Wyden has been a big deal. There are other people with technical backgrounds now and savvy in Congress. Um, one of them I, I mentioned in the book uh, is Republican from Texas. But, you know, one thing that's changed is that, you know, before 2016, I think tech was by and large seen as a good thing. Tech writ large, big, big tech. Um, you know, they're great for the economy. That, you know, everybody likes being able to, you know, find their old high school friends on Facebook. You know, it's pretty cool being able to have a supercomputer in your pocket in the, in the form of the iPhone. Um, now, many people from across the political spectrum are down on tech. Um, and that includes many people who work in tech. Uh, the sort of rank and file movement in Silicon Valley now is completely, I've been covering Silicon Valley for more than 20 years now. It's never happened before. There's never been this sort of workforce opposition um, to things that their companies are doing. And that's really interesting. And that is, is totally the heritage of Cult of the Dead Cow and the hacktivists and something that's being carried forward now. Um, yesterday uh, or the day before, vice president of Amazon quit because Amazon uh, was, has been firing people who've been active in coordinating uh, protests over uh, safety in the warehouses as well as on climate issues. Um, you know, and he gave a big public blog post explaining, you know, why he, he couldn't work for Amazon anymore, despite it having been, um, a great job. All of that stuff is, is, is happening now. And so even if you work for a big company, you can sort of, can effectively work from within. Google employees got the company to stop, um, supplying artificial intelligence for targeting of autonomous weapons. Um, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, some Facebook employees have pushed the company to stop accepting false political advertising, though it hasn't worked yet. Um, there, there are all sorts of things going on that I think are, are super cool. Yeah. And I think that one of the best ways to think about these issues is based on a mental model that uh, Song, uh, the person you mentioned, uh, Doug Song, who sold his company to Cisco, he says, uh, or you say about his model here, 
Rather than thinking about the world as binary, good or evil, Song said he found it helpful to think of the Matrix in the role-playing game Dungeons and Dragons with one axis running from good to evil and another one running from lawful to chaotic. This is immensely helpful as we think about a world where, a la cyberspace, where the laws are being written in real time. So there's going to be, it's, you know, it's an emergent system, there's going to be chaos, there's going to be laws that have not yet been written, and we're going to need to be able to tolerate a little bit of that chaos. Could you tell us a little bit about that matrix and maybe how it informed your thought process on thinking of these issues? There are a few things that are, that are, are super important about Cult of the Dead Cow and others they've inspired that they have in common. So one is, um, probably the most important, I think, is, is critical thinking. The, the ability to, to look at something, stand apart from it, and, and, and really think about what you know about it, what's knowable, um, without relying on just sort of, you know, some random influencer <laughs> um, on Instagram. Um, so thinking seriously, rigorously about stuff. You know, we kind of have a, a worldwide shortage of that, and hackers are great examples of, of, of doing that because, like, by nature, uh, by nature, all hackers, all serious hackers, are critical thinkers. They're looking at structures and figuring out um, things that are wrong with them, uh, especially if they're using them as they're not as intended to be used. Um, the second is is one or more moral cause. Um, some of the people are, you know, could be into government. Some could be pro civil rights. Some could care more about the environment. But there's some kind of moral drive somewhere in there. And, and the last is adaptability. Um, you know, the ability to CDC started out as writing funny text files and wound up being these critical forces in sort of global issues of surveillance and democracy. So the ability to keep changing the playing field um, or keep up as the playing field changes, but hold on to your earlier values is super important. Kids grow up thinking that, you know, you're, you're a criminal or a cop. Um, you follow the law or you don't, and you're good if you follow the law. Maybe that's, you know, largely true, but it's not always true. Um, you know, Hitler came to power legally. He was elected. Um, there's a lot of terrible stuff that happens under color of law. Um, and so Doug Sog gives the example of Darth Vader. You know, Darth Vader isn't breaking the law. He's just evil. Um, so it's important to think for yourself. Um, where you stand. You know, if the law said X, would it still be the ethical thing to follow the law? Or would it be the ethical thing to subvert the law? Um, and people come down in different places. And, you know, they're in, certainly in, in, within hackerdom, um, there, there, uh, you know, there, there are lots of examples. In particularly the early days, I think lawful, you know, unlawful, um, chaotic was pretty much the norm. Uh, and people, you know, I talked to a lot of the really old guard who like left hacking and security as far back as the 80s. And they tend to most, many of them still have that mindset. Don't really care much about the law. Don't actually care that much about advancing moral causes. They just sort of like messing with stuff. The difference with the CDC and the hacktivists and people involved in security today, the really good ones, is that they kind of morally evolved. Um, and that, you know, once everybody got online and they realized how much was at stake, they realized that they had to sort of level up morally and, and do more good for more people. Um, so even if they feel like they're sort of anti-establishment, a business is a good way to distribute stuff that actually helps people be more secure. So a number of the old CDC guys um, and people around them now work for Apple. You know, they help make the iPhone more secure, which helps a lot of people. Um, you know, there are others that work for, for Google. Uh, they're, 
you know, there is good stuff to be done in all of these companies and in government and as an outside agitator, all these different ways. Um, and, you know, whether your personal style is to, you know, always follow the law or whether it's to uh, ignore the laws completely, there is a place for people to do good and important, helpful work. Yeah. And I think that uh, another following quote that you have here is the more powerful machines become, the sharper human ethics have to be. This is something that I think is uh, paramount to start discussing now and start uh, getting into school curriculum because we have all these emerging technologies and we don't have a lot of conversations going on ethics and teaching children or college students about ethics and applied thinking. Um, what type of curriculum or conversations would you like to see going on more at schools about this stuff? So there, there are two things. Um, the one that's sort of top of mind and I was thinking about when I, when I wrote those words is artificial intelligence, because a lot of this is machine learning driven um, and it can institutionalize bad stuff. Um, so for example, there's been like predictive policing stuff where the LAPD or whomever will send more patrols into a given area because they get historically had more reports of crime from that area. But maybe that's because, um, you know, they're, you know, that place was over-policed in the beginning. Um, there are lots of really scary examples of, you know, people saying, Hey, the computer produced this, for example, recommendation, uh, that somebody get a longer prison sentence because they're more likely to reoffend. And then it turns out that that's based on, garbage data. Um, there was a case like this in Florida and, you know, shockingly, like big, the computer kept saying um, these black defendants were more likely to reoffend, uh, so they should get longer sentences. And they didn't. Um, it was, it was completely wrong. The thing that I really call out is, is, is case studies. A real company faced this challenge. This is what they did. You know, what have others in a real life business or government situation done and what what should have happened instead that that should really be more widely adopted in uh, in schools couldn't agree more yeah the case study format is fascinating to spark conversation and critical thinking joe is there anything that you'd like to leave our listeners with is there anything that's on your radar that is you think going to be a major discussion point in the next couple months um what are you looking at now and what are you thinking so a big issue is uh i mean everybody's right now People are thinking about COVID more than anything. And uh, the surveillance and um, that's involved in trying to stop it. I mean, surveillance also has a technical meaning for epidemiology. Um, you want to keep track of the population to see who's getting ill. And then there's contact tracing, which is, you know, who else have they been in touch with? So you can warn them to get tested and isolate before they spread it further. So this is a very live issue as we speak. Uh, Apple and Google in a very rare uh, development got together and came up with apps, a framework for apps that would work on Android or the iPhone um, that would allow various public entities to do contact tracing. And the way it's, it, it basically works is you, you opt in, you download this app if you want to, um, and it uses Bluetooth uh, or other means to figure out what your, you know, what other phones you were in proximity to without learning their names. Uh, and then if you test positive, 
um, you can ask your doctor or another official to confirm that you are positive and send out something that will automatically notify the people that you're in contact with, you know, a certain number of minutes, certain number of feet, and say, hey, um, you might want to get tested. You were in contact. Uh, you were in the same area as somebody without saying who that person was. What's interesting is that governments around the world now are by and large falling into line with what Apple and Google wanted. They wanted names. They wanted the ability to keep Bluetooth on in the background, uh, which would mean that they would get pure location data um, instead of just if uh, somebody turns uh, turns positive um, and would be less sort of less voluntary. It's gray, but that's the way we're going. So far, um, the UK, as we, as we talked today, the UK um, and France are still pushing for something like that. Uh, Germany had been, but they sort of fell into line. So Apple and Google, you know, and the sort of engineering tech heads behind those companies um, are actually preserving privacy against those governments. So that's, that's super interesting and an example of how the sort of the tech ethics flow out and influence, you know, hundreds of millions of people. So it, you know, it will, it will, it's only going to get more important. Uh, as tech gets more important, tech security and privacy gets more important, and ethics get more important. So whatever your, whatever your relation to technology is now, it would behoove people to, uh, to bone up on this stuff. And, um, you know, the story of the Gulf to the Dead Cow, about to be out in paperback, is a, is a fun way to do it. Couldn't agree more. Wise words. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. And to everyone listening, we'll see you next time. I'm Sophia Bush, and you've been listening to Hidden in Plain Sight from Mission.org. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Splunk, the data-to-everything platform. In today's data-driven world, every company, big or small, new or old, is sitting on terabytes of unused, untapped, and unknown data. Splunk helps turn all that data into action. Using cutting-edge AI and machine learning, Splunk delivers real-time predictive insights that will help you on your mission to change the world. With solutions for IT, security, Internet of Things, and business operations, Splunk empowers people to make faster, better decisions and take action to get things done. It's time for our data to be more than a record of what happened. It's time to make things happen. Check it out at Splunk.com.